HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is made possible thanks to the generosity of our listeners. Show your support at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. This week on Meet in 3, we look at the ways indoor and outdoor spaces are being reconceptualized during the pandemic to better suit new modes of living, working, and eating. Brought a vibrancy and an energy back to the city streets that were so dearly missed during the height of the pandemic. This is about how we can grow indoors all year round uh, using proprietary technology that we've developed. How do I have someone understand, look, don't take a next to the June berries because you can eat those. That's free food. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Chuck Cotter, the legal eagle who heads up the food, beverage, and consumer products industry group at the law firm Holland & Hart. Chuck advises companies at all stages of growth, from startups to ready to exit, helping them successfully raise capital, comply with regulatory requirements, and structure their teams. Welcome, Chuck. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here. And um, Right before we started recording, we were talking about how you really are more than just a lawyer. It's nice that you're a lawyer because the legal stuff is important. Um, But what a lot of us really need at my stage and earlier, and, you know, I guess even further along is we just need people to help us make decisions and give context to those decisions, which I feel like a lot of sort of Um, service providers don't do that well. You know, they're very much like they execute or they send you a contract, but they're not giving you sort of the why um, behind all of it. And I feel like you're very good at the why. Well, thanks. (laughs) We certainly try. Um, You know, a lot of it is, and it's what I experienced being a lawyer in New York, where you service just all sorts of different industries. Um, You could give great purely legal advice, but absent the business context, 
it's not always that useful. Right. Um, and what I also hated about, you know, the way we were trained to give advice sometimes is it seemed more uh, like the goal was more to not have that advice come back at us to cover our own asses and to give you the most risk averse advice possible rather than to give you practical advice that's contextualized by experience. Right. No. And, and it's great. And I think, you know, rather than sort of, did you, I'm going to ask, did you always want to be a lawyer? Uh, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> what did you want to be when you were a young man? <laughs> it bounced all around. My my yeah. dad was in the military and I grew up on military bases. So mm -hmm. for a while I wanted to be in the military. Yeah. Uh, as I got a little older, I realized I lacked a lot of the things people need to get <laughs> to be in the military, including <laughs> the discipline um, right. and maybe the, the, uh, the patriotism. But okay. uh, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, but, um, you know, it, it evolved and I loved science. I thought I'd be an astronomer, but then it just came down to, I was good at school. Right. I was good at school. And then I was good at college, getting good grades in relatively useless majors. Right. So law school seemed like the, the right next step. <laughs> and how did you end up sort of in this weird little fun world of consumer packaged goods? Well, when when I moved to Boulder from New York, it gave me an opportunity to take a step back and assess uh, the eight years I'd spent being a lawyer in New York and what I did and didn't like. Mm -hmm. And one thing I didn't like, like I alluded to, is working in a lot of different industries and just right. giving impractical advice. Yep. So I decided I was going to pick an industry. And I was a vegan at the time and really loved Better For You products and what right. they could do for people and how you felt uh, working for companies who were doing good things versus mm -hmm. bad things. So you are a patriot in that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I guess I should have used the word jingoist maybe when I said patriot. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I want to, I'm going to hop around. I sent you a draft. We're now like going to just go to like the bottom. Um, because one of the things that I think is interesting is you advise founders and companies, um, but you also advise funds when they are looking to invest in founders and companies. And I guess my sort of million dollar question or several million dollar question is, what are you telling them? Um, what should we know that they will be looking for? You know, when you get a, a fund that's like, we really like these guys, we want to do their A. Is there ever a reason for you to be like, well, hmm, you know, what are we not seeing on the other side, I guess, of like the curtain um, or the wizard or whatever the, the analogy is? Yeah. And I'll, I'll get to what I think your point is, which is, is there any secret sauce back there? Um, yeah. I mean, is there, is there, are there things that we should be thinking about that we don't even know we don't know? I'd actually like to start with, um, you know, there's a, a, a decent subset of founders that because of information asymmetry are really skeptical and cautious about investors or lawyers or, or, or anyone that has um, maybe a little bit more information on this stuff. The, mm -hmm. When it comes to funds, I, you know, and we do call it 30 to 40 fund side deals a year in the CPG space. I cannot recall ever a fund coming to me and saying, I really wanted to get into this company. How can we put together a tricky deal? Right. <laughs> right? Like it, just, right. it doesn't happen. Now, 
Um, uh, or it's never happened in my experience. Now, my general point of view with them is the same as it is when I'm when I'm with the brands, which is, look, virtually all of the deals get done in the 40th to 60th percentile. They're, what does that mean? Uh, meaning, if you took all of the deals that get done, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, almost all of them share common terms. Now, there are outliers on either end that are way more investor favorable, way more brand favorable, and there may mm-hmm. be reasons. But if you see enough deals, most of them are in the middle. Like that middle section. Which is yep. slight, you know, slight deviations to either side. And I'm generally of the point of view that what you're seeking on either side is a deal that achieves the business goals, but a, a deal that also feels fair to both yep. sides, right? Mm-hmm. It falls into that middle sweet zone. And so we take that approach either way, with, with either side. Um, now, when it, when it comes to, you know, the funds, like I said, they're, they're generally not trying to be one-sided or, get, you know, get a sneaky deal or anything, but they do want a fair deal and a market deal. And sometimes, uh, you know, let me give you an example of, uh, of the type of things they want us to make sure that, 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 that aren't happening, right? Yeah. That the, the founder can just sell the company, right? Right. Um, or that the founder could just uh, sell their controlling stake in the company and the investor couldn't participate or couldn't buy that equity because um, both of those are not achieving the goals that they want. Uh, So I would say that there's not actually a lot on the other side. There is, to use your Wizard of Oz, maybe analogy, what's behind the curtain? Mm -hmm. There's nothing behind the curtain. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but they have to be looking for certain things. I mean, we, we kind of know they're looking, you know, they want you to have good sales. They want you to have, you know, capital efficiency. They want you, but is there anything that you're seeing that, um, that we should know that we might not have our eye on, you know, we're very much like, we know we need to sell a lot of whatever it is. We know that our velocities in every account should be of a certain, you know, market, you know, parity and growing, you know, ideally we have, you know, worked on our margins and depending on the category we're in, those margins should be, you know, better than they were last year and on their way to something. Um, But, you know, are there, is there anything, else, you know, or like, are they, do they care? Um, I don't know. Are they real? Are they looking to see like how big you think you can be or what kind of innovation you're doing? I mean, I'm sure they're looking for a lot of things, but like, is there anything, you know, I guess in particular that I should be focused on as I start getting ready to, to do the series a next year, you know, maybe I need a slide for that. I didn't know that I needed a slide for. Yeah, I mean, profitability and scrappiness are two things that always get um, get some emphasis on the investor side, but are getting more and more emphasis. Yeah, for probably obvious reasons, right? right. Cash efficiency and so on. So it's it's your product margin now, and then your product margin, um, you know, at scale or as you scale. I don't necessarily mean you just jump forward five years, mm-hmm. right? Um, contribution margin, all that stuff. And then when I talk scrappiness, um, let me give you an example. Yes. So represent an investor. Um, The investor uh, is very experienced in the food and beverage space, Mm -hmm. was interested in a brand, asked the brand to send over various financial data. Brand is paying out more in salaries than they make in revenue, right? Right. 
and uh, including pretty steep salaries for the founders themselves, right? <laughs> right. And the yeah. uh, this investor's point of view is you should be putting skin in the game by taking a well below market salary. By the way, I agree um, mm -hmm. because you're going to make, if this is successful, millions and millions of dollars in your equity. Right? right. And if you don't have enough confidence in that to take a well below what you could make on the open market at a corporate job salary, then why should I have confidence in it? Right. Um, and I I, I've, I've had another similar experience where an investor was in a meeting with someone early stage, seed stage. And uh, we asked this founder what they were paying themselves. This was going to be their first real fundraise. And it was over $200,000. The, wow. the meeting was done. The meeting yeah. was done. Wow. So I want to ask a question because I feel like I hear, I'm sure it's like the sailboat where you want to let the wind out enough, but you want to pull it in tight enough. Like you're just trying to find the right tack. But so much of the spend, at least in our business, is on the growth. So on one hand, we're hearing that they want those velocities to grow and they want the numbers to grow. And while everyone says they want it to be organic, the reality is, is like, yes, there is organic growth for sure. But also like what really moves things off the shelf, especially now if people are, have never heard of your product is promotions and digital ads and things like that. So where does the, you know, there's this tension almost between like, we could be spending more and we could be growing faster. I happen to just be sort of like on the older side and I come from brick and mortar. So like, I'm just, you know, frugal in a way. Um, but that wasn't really the, like the zeitgeist of the last couple of years. It was like, grow, 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 top line, top line, top line. And now all of a sudden we're hearing we're supposed to be sort of like scrappy and, you know, fiscally conservative, but we're also supposed to have the growth. Like, are they, do they understand the investors that the growth might slow down a bit if the spend slows down a bit? Yeah. Uh, just do everything with nothing, right? Um, right. That's the, that's the thing. Yeah. I mean, make all of those things better, you know, yeah. and it's hard. They're so correlated. They are. Um, I mean, so I would say looking at it in the investor or the acquirer side, there's an understanding around spend, whether it's promo or something else to drive trial on the front end of a product, right? A front mm -hmm. end or a front end of a new product or a new region or a new retailer or right, whatever it is. Right. Got it. Okay. But if, if you have to keep, yeah. um, a, a crazy large field team or keep selling on promo, even after you've driven trial in for a product in a region and a retailer, then it starts to indicate to the investor or the acquirer that there may not be enough mm -hmm. consumer demand around this product to support the velocities yeah, absent a constant yeah. promo strategy yeah. or uh, too large of a field team. So that's, right. that's when it shifts from, of course, you're going to spend to do that to, oh, geez, maybe you can only do that if you spend. Right. And that's actually such a good point because I'm, we're, everything is new. It's all new products. It's all new regions. It's all new stores. <laughs> so like, I'm like, okay, phew, I'm yeah. fine spending on my, uh, spending on my, you know, marketing. Okay. Let's go back up to the fair. Um, yes. you know, what's fair. And I think a lot of that has to do with valuation. And, you know, I, I haven't heard very many um, founders and investors being completely aligned on a fair valuation. 
after, you know, just like on the first try. And I think that's because, you know, as founders, we, if you're just basing our valuation on, you know, three to four times revenue this year, right? That's a very different number than what we know is incoming with all of next year, you know, at 52 weeks of the retailers we're in three to four times that. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, and I also know that it's kind of unfair to just pick a month and be like, let's just do, you know, run rate based on the best month of the year, because it's not every month just is going up and up and up for most of our categories. So where do you, where do you feel like the arena is a little bit, you know, I mean, I would give numbers, but I feel like that's probably not a good idea, but, um, for myself, just to like announce all of our, all of our revenue, but you and I will talk offline, but what, what do you think is sort of like the right way to think about valuation and, and how, how has that changed in the last several months or is it totally category specific and give me your thoughts. Yeah, I would say sometimes valuation is logical and sometimes it is not. Sometimes mm-hmm. you can do what you're implying there, which is you can make a math formula on net revenue and tie it to valuation and there is a multiple, right? Mm-hmm. Or net revenue times multiple equals valuation. But it's often not that simple. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, it's to, me, to me, even though a lot of people would like to talk about it as if it's more scientific, until you get much later stage, it's more of an art than a science. Right. Um, the a few things I would throw out there are, um, first of all, founders inevitably are trying to price themselves off of the top comparables there are. Yes, for sure. Right, and if you're an investor, that's difficult because if you're constantly paying top multiple, you know, you're you're reducing your returns on your successes. Right, right. Which are the make up for the ones that are not successes. If if I were a founder, here's how I would try to think about the valuation I want to push. Yes. Uh, first of all, of course, as you implied, is it rational compared to to valuation? I mean, excuse me, compared to sales, right? right. Net revenue. Um, the earlier stage you are, the less rational it has yeah, to be. Yeah, totally. Because I mean, you have no revenue, <laughs> so yeah. your, your valuation would be none. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which is, of course, why people do note rounds and, and so right. on. But right. yeah, so first, like, definitely reference that. Second, if you're landing at a value, try to model out with someone. If you if you can't do it yourself, I'm sure your advisors or teammates mm-hmm. can do it with you. What do you think is going to happen in the future? Make some conservatively aggressive assumptions about what you think you can do. And then see what your investors will make. And if you're trying to tell a venture investor that even if you hit a home run, they're only going to make three times their money, the valuation is too high. Got it. Okay. That's a great way to think about it. All right. So let's just take a theoretical company. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and so I, I actually, we don't have to do that whole thing, but what we can say is like, that's why going back to a lot of the previous episodes, we've talked about knowing your category and knowing, you know, if you're killing it in a, in a very small category where if you own the whole thing, you're at, you know, a hundred million in sales, then you're not going to be able to sort of justify, 
a massive valuation because there's only so far you can go. And if you get acquired, basically, I mean, am I on the right tack here a little bit? Right. Yeah. What category are you in? What's your, you know, what's your potential, but not insane revenue growth opportunity, right? Right. Uh, How good are your product margins? And back to category, some are just sexier than others in the sense that they're going to drive higher exit multiples, right? Ready to drink beverage is going to get a better multiple than frozen. Yeah. Always. always. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And that's interesting. And, you know, even just the market size and then um, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. And then, and so the goal really isn't necessarily the number, but the goal is to say to an investor, Hey, if you put 5 million in and we sell for, you know, 200, you're going to make X as opposed to, um, you know, you're going to make 2x or what? Right. I understand. Okay. Right. Because yeah. if you're telling a venture investor the home run scenario for them, now you understand, I know you understand, venture funds are set up so that their home runs more than make up for the ones that are going to go to zero. Right. Right. And so right. If, if their home runs are not a high enough multiple, then you're not an attractive enough opportunity at that value. Right. Got it. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. All right. On the um, hope that I am an attractive enough opportunity, we're going to take a break and then we're going to come back and talk about how to make uh, me an even more attractive opportunity. We'll be right back. All of us at HRN have been keeping busy despite working and recording from home. This fall, we're proud to announce new shows on the network that each bring important and enlightening stories to listeners around the world. While the world is in turmoil and the future of our country is uncertain, there are certain constants that help keep us going. For us, food and storytelling are essential. While we can't come together in person, food podcasts from HRN provide a virtual table we can all gather around. Bringing exceptional stories to your ears and keeping you informed on the ever-changing political and environmental issues of our time is integral to our mission. At a time when the world around us is rapidly changing, HRN is committed to being here for our listening community, and we need you to be here for us. Join our table and help ensure the future of food radio by becoming a member of HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to make a contribution. Check out the latest additions to our lineup while you're there. You can see all of our series at heritageradionetwork.org slash new show. I'm back with Chuck Cotter, partner at Holland and Hart. We are talking about valuation. Okay. Um, so that was very helpful, sort of understanding like what's in it for them a little bit. It's not just about trying to sort of get the value of the company down so that they don't have to pay as much. It's so that they can have a better return if and when the company sells, which is actually very good context for it. Um, Let's talk a little bit about dilution. Um, And I remember very early on, you know, it's sort of classic, right? When you don't have any cash, you just want to give everyone equity. And then all the smart people out there are like, don't give away equity. Equity's the most valuable thing in the world. Don't do it. Don't do it. And you're like, no, it's just 
a half a percent or it's just, you know, a quarter of a percent or, but it goes so fast. Um, when, you know, is the general rule of thumb that you kind of give away 20% of the company with every investment round? Is that, is that, is it too general to say that? It's both too general and pretty right. <laughs> like okay. a, a lot of the rounds we see hit hit that um, around that, but um, there could be reasons to do more. There could be reasons to do less. It, it just depends. Right, but that goes to you know we have a lot. I get a lot of DMs about founders and co-founders and things like that. And just so everyone's clear, if you're starting at fifty fifty. And you do two rounds, you know, at twenty percent each round, you know that lands a co-founder at ten percent, right? Uh, if that's the right math. So if you if you have two fifty fifty founders and you sold twenty percent and then you sold another twenty percent, right? Mm-hmm. Then those founders have in the aggregate sold about thirty eight percent. Right. So 19 down from 50, they're probably both around 31. That's, okay. Okay. That's loose so that's, math, but right. But that's better than my math. <laughs> okay. So that's not a total nightmare, but you know, then you have like your team that you're giving, you know, equity to and God knows who else. So, um, so hold on to it. Be careful is, is the gist. And, and when, um, you're, yeah. and when you're talking about dilution and we were just talking about valuation, they tie together right? Because in a sense, um, you may, as a founder, achieve a valuation for raising money that's less than is ideal, right? Mm-hmm. Well, then the way to, to control the dilutive effect of that is to maybe raise a little less. Right. So, um, you know, that may be obvious to everyone, but that's usually what we're, what we're doing is just downsizing rounds when we can't get to the valuation we want or the valuation cap in a note. Right. That makes sense. So so in terms of downsizing rounds, let's talk about rounds at all. Right. So I was in an interesting situation where the first round I did was a priced round because I had a major investment from, you know, a a production partner in the company. Um, So I kind of whipped out, I mean, it was, you know, I did a bunch of research and I asked a bunch of people, but at the end of the day, we priced ourselves at a pre-money valuation that had no, nothing to do at all with the sales. I mean, it was just, but it, it felt right. It didn't feel obnoxious. And we were able to find investors that agreed. Um, so the market supported it. A lot of people don't start off with a price round. They talk, you know, they start off with like a safe note or a convertible note. And can you walk me through a little bit? I mean, why that's a good plan, a little bit maybe if there's a difference between the two and sort of how, when, and why you would use those notes as opposed to um, full, you know, rounds where, and and to be clear, from my understanding, there, when an investor is investing in a, in a convertible note, they're, they're essentially giving you debt that will convert to equity when there is a priced round. Is that that's an correct. way of saying it. So you're not giving away equity in your company. You're essentially borrowing money, but instead of paying it back in cash, you're paying it back with equity once that has been established. That's right. Okay. So I'll talk about a convertible note and then I'll tell you, just say at the end how a safe is different because they're so okay. similar. Great. So 
you nailed it. A convertible note is, is okay, I'm taking a loan from you. We both, of course, intend that it will convert into, or you know, you can think of it as being repaid with equity, mm -hmm. right? And here are the, the reasons that's so popular for early stage companies. I'd say it's the overwhelming majority. First, it's because it's really difficult to establish an acceptable valuation for the company, which you have to do if you're selling equity. Right. right. But if you're if you're selling a note, you can defer that a little bit. Now, you do have to set some parameters about how the, the conversion is going to happen. Right? right. And you could think of it like this. Um, the the act that's going to cause the note to convert into equity in the future is most of the time your future big equity round. Let's just call it your series A round or your venture round. Right. Um, so let's say uh, you you know you raise a, a note round of a million dollars and then you do a three million dollar equity round you know twelve months later. Well, that million dollar note plus the interest that's accrued mm -hmm. will, at the time of that future venture round, convert into equity alongside the uh, the venture money. But wait a second, if I'm one of the note investors, I came in a full year earlier, right? Mm -hmm. You were way more risky. Uh, I need to get some return for that. In other words, a better deal than right. your venture money. There are two ways they get a better deal. The first is a discount. It's, mm -hmm. it's almost always 20%, not always, yeah. but almost always. So an example would be if the venture money's paying a dollar a share, the debt would convert at 80 cents a share. 80 cents. Makes sense. Yeah. The other part, and this is the one that can really trip founders up. It's yep. called the valuation cap. Yeah, the cap. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <The> value, <laughs> it's, if you're a founder, think of it as the it's the ceiling value at which an investor's note will convert. So if if they if, let's say that the valuation cap is five million, mm -hmm. if you raise it ten million, a hundred million, or a billion dollar valuation, it doesn't matter. It's converting at five, right? At the premium. Uh, it's converting at the valuation cap, regardless right. of what the pre-money is. Okay. If if the pre-money is, you know, basically more than twenty percent higher than your cap. Um, they'll right. Take the so cap let's say the company that raised that did the million dollar note uh, has a has a uh, let's say five million dollar cap, right? Or would they not? Like how, how can you give a good, like a little example? Yeah, I'll give you an example of what it'll convert into and then an example of a mistake if you don't yeah. mind. Yes, that's great. <laughs> um, <laughs> so in your example of you raised a million dollars in a note and mm -hmm. it converts or, you know, the valuation cap is five. Now let's say you uh, end up raising your venture round at a 10 pre-money. Mm -hmm. Well, that million is going to convert at five because that's a better deal for the investor than their 20% discount. Well, if a million dollars uh, is converting at five, that means it's converting into one sixth approximately, of course, of the equity of your company. It's, it's, think of it as the 1 million investment right. divided by the 1 million investment plus the 5 million cap. And that's the percentage it's converting into. Oh, wow. Uh, now, where, where we see early stage mistakes... Um, that can be really bad because <laughs> there are right. small ones, of course. It's something. It looks something like this. Um, I set up a note with a valuation cap of three million dollars. Right. Mm -hmm. I didn't really understand what it was, what that meant. 
but I did my note on LegalZoom or with a solo practitioner who also does trust in estates and real estate and litigation. So mm-hmm. they didn't really know either. <laughs> right. So I've got a $3 million cap and I have such an amazing product that so many people are interested in, or I have so many rich friends right. that I sold $3 million of notes. Right. right. Well, you just sold half your company, <gasps> 3 million in notes divided yeah. by 3 million cap plus 3 million in notes, right? So uh, the key is if you can't get a, uh, what I'll call a high cap, right? It's a qualitative term, but um, then you need to make sure you don't over raise. And so what we, the strategy to do there is if you can't get a really high cap at first, it's raise a small amount and then do another note round before you do your venture round at a higher cap. Got it. Okay. Okay. Well, that just scared me a little oh, bit. I'm like going back I, into my, you know, cause I did a seed round, a price round, and then I did a note to kind of bridge to the series A, which I feel like a lot of people are doing also. Cause correct. you know, you've proven out that you're really strong regionally, or you've proven out that there is a consumer that loves you. You've got some things you need to work out. You've got some operations, things you need to fix and you, and you're, you've built the fundamentals, you haven't necessarily scaled it quite yet. And so you're not quite ready for that series A. Um, but a lot of companies I know are, are filling that in with a little note money um, in between. That's right. The two circumstances are early stage raises or where you want to do a smaller raise between your, your equity rounds because you're about to see some successes, right? right? You can use a little bit of money to see some successes and get a much better valuation. Yeah. The just quickly, the other reasons to do note round or safe round. Yeah. Um, they're quick and easy to get done. They usually one, maybe two documents, and you'll pay way less uh, to lawyers, for example, to get them done. Usually, right. you know, a quarter as much as you would for an equity round. Wow. Um, and our our investors now, you know, because I always thought of sort of note rounds as not necessarily institutional investors. It was more just sort of people who wanted to be supportive and you know, friends and family and angels and stuff like that, but are, are more sort of fund type of investors. Are they doing notes more now because founders want to do them more? Um, funds still strongly prefer equity rounds almost always, right? but here's why they will do notes, either a smaller note when you're early stage or a bridge note in between rounds. It's because the, uh, for the, what I'll call the premier brands, and this is still the case even during COVID, the landscape is very competitive with a lot of venture money. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people will do a non, like a fund will make a non-ideal investment, like a note, mm-hmm. to get its foot in the door yep. to lead your next round. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and it's funny. And it's interesting that you say that because I did have a couple of funds that wanted to participate in my note. And I was just slightly concerned that, Either they, you know, I wouldn't want them to lead the the Series A, in which case that would be sort of uncomfortable, or on the off chance they didn't want to lead it. If you have a fund that was in your note and they don't want to lead your A, I just was nervous. Like, what if that doesn't look good? Or, you know, it just felt like I I just didn't want to get into the sandbox with a fund until the Series A. And I I don't know if that's just me or I've just heard too many horror stories or what, but are, is there any risk there? Yes. So, you, I mean, you nailed it, right? There are obviously some advantages to having a fund come in in a note, which is 
uh, potentially expertise and potentially lining up your future investor. But if it's a fund that clearly made that note investment with the idea that it would lead your next round, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you can identify that not if you're an outsider, obviously you already know because you're the founder. If you're an outsider, you can identify that because you say to yourself, that fund doesn't normally make investments like that. They right. do normally lead series B rounds. Why aren't they leading the series B round? Right. Um, and it, it basically signals to other funds two things. By the way, if you're so hot, they don't care, right? Your company's yeah. doing great. It doesn't I don't matter. know. I don't trust uh, anything that's so hot. Every time everything, <laughs> something that's too hot, I might just, my like... I don't know. Something goes up in me. It's like the 70s child or something, but like I'm just like, eh, something's wrong there. Something's fake or something's phony or something. It's too hot to be long lasting. I yeah. I know, I know. It's you know. It's so also when, what I say to myself when I'm like, you just keep your head down and you just keep working. <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's a good grinder mentality. Thank um, you. Thank you. So in that circumstance, though, the outside people say to themselves, either the founder made a promise they didn't keep mm-hmm. or the fund saw something they didn't like. Right. And it's very similar to if you give a strategic, a buy right in your company right. in connection with an investment and then they don't want to buy you. Yeah. It's like- uh, That's almost like the nightmare scenario. Right? They, yeah. they know more than we do. Why didn't they want to buy? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So thinking about the Series A- Um, so I had, um, Chris Fenster from Propeller on, and and he was my first guest at like post the day that we all realized that COVID was a thing. You know, there was like a day in March where we were like, oh wait, this isn't going to be two weeks where we don't go to work. Um, and basically he was talking about sort of like the ducks you want to get in a row financially. He was saying like, have 18 months of cash on hand, which is a lot. Um, but, you know, for those of us who who could, I think a lot of us went out and did kind of, you know, build up the coffers a little bit and, um, you know, other things to just to get in a row. You know, I mean, I went to all of my different service providers and I just said, are you sure that you can't cut the rate a little bit? Are you sure? Because I don't know that I'm going to be able to pay whatever it is a month. And every single one of them worked with me um, on renegotiating those numbers. So there was like a lot of sort of um, tightening up that happened that, you know, maybe could have happened before, but we just weren't in that atmosphere. Um, And even just looking at my team, you know, it wasn't fun or easy, but there was definitely a little overlap or someone who I loved as a human, but maybe wasn't necessarily going to grow. So there were, there, we, we definitely made some real business um, changes um, on that day. And I guess the question for you is legally, is there anything that I could be doing now that will protect me from having to do it in the future? Like anything I might not know about, like, my IP or, you know, reps. I remember when we did the seed round, I had to go through about 80 questions of, you know, just things about the company that I, you know, know I hadn't been convicted of a crime, but like I wasn't a hundred percent sure that there wasn't like something somewhere about something, you know. So are there things that we can be doing now to save us any sort of having to clean up later legally? 
There absolutely are, and I'll hit them, but you also nailed the tension, right? Which is if you're trying to conserve cash, you can't do everything. Right. right. So I guess I'll also emphasize what I think are the most important, especially taking our experience on the fun side, doing due yeah. diligence, like yes. what are red flags versus yellow flags. Yeah, that's um, very helpful. And what I'll, what I'll also say to your point about talking to your service providers is it's really good because what I would much rather is a client says to me, we don't want to you know, mess up our co-manufacturing agreement because you've told us how important it is. Um, but I can't pay you the entire cost for negotiating that in 30 days. Like, what can right. we do? And I would always rather say, pay me in 90. Mm-hmm. Than, than say, well, then I guess you can have You're a shitty company. Just, right, yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> right. Um, so it, that's smart. Um, okay. Well, when it comes to what is the most important stuff to continue to get advice around so that you don't screw it up because it will hurt you at a Series A round if you do. Right. Here are the ones that I would hit. Great. Your trademarks and branding, right? At the end of the day, virtually every CPG company is has its core value in its brand or brand portfolio. Right. That is what a, an acquirer will acquire and an investor will invest in, because um, because it's it's your brand, your your story, and your customers they need. Mm-hmm. So if you're not protecting your trademarks, that's a problem. Um, you know, it, what do I mean by that? Well, the first and most obvious are, um, are you doing searches around a mark before you file for it? Right. right. Here's why that's important. The USPTO right now can take six to 12 months to get back to folks for, so you can actually get your mark. Think of all the brand building you do yeah. in 12 in months. months. Yeah. So what you don't, what you almost need to know in advance is that you're 100% going to get it or you're, de- or you're very likely going to get it because you don't want right. to rebrand in six to 12 months. Right. So run a real search. I know it's a couple grand you don't want to spend, but it's necessary, especially since the U.S. is not a jurisdiction where the U.S. PTO is, is like the end-all be-all as far as people's rights. People right. can have rights in a mark and never file with the U.S. PTO, and that can right. get in the way of yeah. dual rights. So. Trademarks. Make sure your your core trademark is clean. You've uh, filed for it. You've gotten it. Um, that's really important. Yeah. Uh, if you're having trademark disputes with others who are infringing on your mark, I know you can't you know be spending a ton of money on cease and desist letters, but you don't want to give up uh, rights in your core mark. That'll be yes. problematic. I actually had very early on. I had a dispute. Um, I, I won, um, but it was, it was money at the time. And it was outrageous to me that I had to pay anyone to not use something that was super close to my name, but because it came from the cooking school and it was still waiting to go through on the product side, um, it was actually like, it was, it was a little dicey, um, for a second, but it it was and it, it was a lot and it was it felt expensive but now looking back I'm like oh my gosh if there were this other product out there in a similar category that had any sort of a similar name just think of how much you know you type in Haven or you type in you know whatever HK whatever it is you type it into anything Amazon Instacart whatever and if something else came up on that page. Um, even if it was close but not the same, it would it would be a nightmare. So that's really good money well spent early on. 
That's right. So, and by the way, the things I'm trying to hit are the things that are very hard for me to fix later. Right. Because right? um, you're going to mess some things up as an entrepreneur. That's okay. If there are types of things we can fix, great. If there are types of things we can't fix, it's a problem. Right. So trademark, trademark. and brand. Yep. Um, uh, how you raised money, of course, is really important. Um, there are various things I mean by that. Did yeah. you give rights to early stage investors that are going to get in the way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, did you, for example, did you give a, a right of first refusal in your next round to an early stage investor? So now any fund coming in may not be able to lead the round they think they're going to lead. Almost any okay. fund leading your Series A wants to control the round. Right. Um, or, you know, it can be problematic even if you just had bad economic terms, right? Like right. you just sold too much or you gave way too much uh, economics to your investor. It could be a red flag to your Series A folks, among other reasons, because they want the founder to have a meaningful incentive, right? Mm-hmm. And if you gave away too much, too many of your economics, it's, it's a problem. Right. Uh, or block rights, et cetera. So, uh, oh, sorry. And lastly, that you complied with securities laws, right? When you did your fundraising. Yes. Uh, you would be surprised by how many people think friends and family round means I can sell <laughs> stock to anyone who's my friend or my family, even if they're not an accredited investor and that's it. Like, so it could be a real problem when a series A fund comes in and says, oh shoot, your seed round violated securities laws. And if you did a seed round with an attorney, like, wouldn't that have been flagged or no? Like, <laughs> it should have. Yeah, it right. should have, right? Because, I mean, wait, just to be clear, because we've all done, I mean, most of us have, have friends and family that have participated um, in, in investing, but they're not necessarily accredited investors. They're they're like your brother-in-law or, or whatever. Is That's not... Okay. So I'll give now um, <laughs> the usual, this is not legal advice. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, a lot of the thing about giving these sort of talks, if you're a lawyer, is um, that there are often small exceptions. So I'm right. going to speak in generalities. Okay. You should not be selling to anyone who's not an accredited investor. Okay. The reason is then you can use a big, big federal securities exemption that preempts all the state securities laws of the states that the people who are investing in you live in. Mm-hmm. And it preempts any very specific, you know, disclosure requirements like a private placement memorandum, right? So if you sold to non-accredited investors in your round, mm-hmm. there's more work that has to be done. Right. Uh, did you comply with state securities laws? Did you comply with disclosure requirements? And not only is that often screwed up, and that's the main reason not to do this. Um, but venture funds who come in hate having to vet that. Because it's so messy. Right. Right. Okay. So and you last, were going, yeah. And the last one, uh, commercial agreements, which are stupid and can't you can't get out of them. Yes. <laughs> As in, do not make an exclusive. This is like the 50th time. Do not make an exclusive agreement with a distributor that like locks you in. Uh, like, I cannot tell you how many people I know have those, and they're terrible, and they're and and they never work. Um, 
and no one likes having to undo them and they're undoable. And then, and then they make you look like a ding dong for signing it in the first place. That's exactly right. Or manufacturing agreements. I've literally seen manufacturing agreements sometimes when we take over companies or that we're diligencing for funds that don't end. <laughs> they're exclusive right, <laughs> and they don't end. And I'm like, how do you get out of this? Right. right. Um, or they don't, uh, clearly identify that the brand owns the intellectual property, aka the recipes and formulas, because right. you'll often as a brand show up at a co-manufacturer with a formula. Right. But then you will create new formulas for new products, or you will create improvements to that existing formula with the co-manufacturer, right? Right. And you need it to be clear that you own those. Because if you don't own those, how do you pick up and go to another manufacturer? Or how does someone who acquires you manufacture your, uh, right. your stuff in house. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's so, it's so fascinating, right? Because like we make so many mistakes. I mean, the reason I started this podcast was literally to like save myself some mistakes, hopefully <laughs> prevent, you know, help other people not make them, you know, but they're just, there's so many different areas that you have to keep your eye on. And at the same time, you're just trying to get people to believe in whether it's like an investor, a co-packer, because everyone and their mother has a product and the co-packers at this point kind of get to choose who they actually have any, you know, it doesn't pay for them to do a tiny little batch of your jam, right? So right. they need to be assuming that you're going to be worth their time and money on the front because it's going to pay off you know, in lots of volume at, you know, on the back. And, and I think one of the things we talk about a lot on the podcast is like everyone from your whole foods buyer to your co-packer, you know, to your actual investors are making an investment in you. And so as a founder, so much of the time, you're just like, thank you so much. I hope you like me, you know, dancing around. And a lot of the things that we can do to protect ourselves legally, it's almost like we feel nervous to do. Like if, if, if you were telling me right now at the beginning of all of this, don't have anyone who's not an accredited investor put money into your company, I think I would have been like, I don't even know, I don't even know any accredited investors. Like how do I even do that? I mean, so accredited investor, if someone's a person, they can qualify a just a couple simple ways. Like, can you go online, like the nope. way you get to marry people? No, there's, there's not actually a certification or anything okay. online or any license they have. Right. They just have to tell you they're accredited in, a, in the agreement. Either they make <laughs> 200 grand okay. or they make 300 grand with their, you know, their spouse, soon to be partner. Okay. Um, or they have a million dollars of net worth excluding their primary home. Those things make someone an accredited investor. And okay. here's the rationale. Uh, and by the way, this definition is changing. Uh, the okay. SEC is changing it. But here's the historical rationale. If you don't have at least those financial resources... You should not be investing in my You should not be company. investing, <laughs> no. Because it's a binary event. Like, right. And a lot of the time, you lose all that money. And right. folks who are not accredited investors who lose their $50,000 check to you, um, it becomes a problem. Like They don't just say, oh, shit, that's the... you know. Right. That's how it goes with venture investing, right? Like right. That's a lot of money to them. It becomes a big problem. Okay. So we're going to, we're going to bite off a big chunk right now. Um, and it's the LLC versus C Corp discussion. Now, 
when I like started the sauces, there was no discussion. I met with someone, they were like, it's an LLC, that's it. There was no alternative presented to me. Um, and the, I think the rationale was that strategics, when they end up buying the company, you somehow do better if you exit as an LLC. And I'm not exactly sure it has something to do with something I think called a step up, which I've never understood what it is. <laughs> um, there's a issue with taxation. If you are profitable as an LLC, something. So I need you to kind of break it down. I think for those of us who have already um, sort of founded ourselves or form, formed ourselves, um, you can switch. I, I know that if you have a fund that has, I think, and Chuck, correct me if I'm wrong, in like international investors, they have a much harder time investing in an LLC than they do a C Corp. So like in my case, for example, if I'm an LLC, I might end up having to, you know, uh, become like convert to a C Corp at some point or before the series A, I don't know, but this is going to be like 101. You're just going to go <laughs> I'll cut you off in eight minutes. Or, or cut me <laughs> off anytime with questions. Um, okay. So it's complex. The reason it's complex is, in a word, tax, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to try not to get too much in the weeds. There are people, uh, you know, like um, CPAs and lawyers for whom it is religion that you should be an LLC right. because of the flexibility it provides, right? And the potential tax benefits. But I like to simplify it to people who are making this decision either upfront or who are deciding relatively early on if they want to convert to be a C-Corp. Um, I describe it as uh, flexible complexity, Right, uh -huh. that's what an LLC is. Lots of flexibility, but lots of complexity, right. um, and a lot more expense versus simplicity. The corporation provides you with simplicity. Let me give some examples. Okay. So, what I also generally pay people, because uh, excuse me, what I tell people if they want to be an LLC is that um, because I'm one of the people who will get paid more. Is right. if you are an LLC, you will pay your lawyers and accountants more money basically mm -hmm. the entire life of your business. Mm -hmm. um, and it's because of the complexity. Right. Uh, the, there are short to medium term tax benefits of being an LLC where um, you uh, can take the losses that almost all early stage businesses have into your personal taxes. And your CPA, of course, could tell you whether uh, those losses are of value to you depending on what other income you have. But... Uh, that's a short to medium term benefit. Now, most balance, of us uh, have very little, <laughs> right? <laughs> now, Hence, the not taking salaries and all that. Yeah. So, and balance that versus the complexity of every year divvying up the loss or income and uh, and sending people K ones that they have to put in their taxes, yeah. and also if you end up converting, potentially having to reverse some of those tax benefits you took because you took them with other people's investment money. A, yeah. a common trap is this. I'm a founder. I have an LLC. Uh, I uh, raise a million dollars in notes, convertible notes. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. I take all of those losses, but I spend that million dollars into my personal income taxes. I am now doing my Series A round. My dream fund demands I convert to be a C Corp. And I have to reverse some of those losses because they were in excess of my basis. By the way, I'm not a tax person, so right. I'm like speaking generally. Right, um, and it all case, goes together. Yeah. yeah, and in case tax people are listening, they're like, "Well, hold on." Um, you you reverse. Yeah, you. No one will be able to stay awake. <laughs> yeah, you reverse it, and here's the bottom line: Why is this a nightmare? We've had founders who have to choose between converting to be a C corp as their fund that they really want demands, or paying a personal hundred thousand dollar tax bill to do so. Right. right. Um, let's also think of employee equity. It's right. So that so I actually had my employees have a conversation with you. Um, because I couldn't explain what I was giving them because they're not actually getting like shares as an LLC, they're getting units or whatever. And I don't even understand it well enough to explain it to myself, let alone to like the people that I'm sort of trusted to, to, to be their, you know, their leader here. And so I actually wanted them just to hear from you. And they said it was very helpful. And then I was going to ask them to explain it to me, but then I was like, well, he's just coming on. So he can explain <laughs> it to the podcast. So uh, when you're an LLC yeah. and you grant equity in your company to uh, employees, the, the equity you grant, it's called profits interests. It's basically a share of future increase in value. That's the way you can think about it. Okay. Um, not only is it way more complex to administrate issuing yeah. and figuring out what, you know, um, the distribution and allocation of cash and taxes for these yeah. folks every year. And not only, and by the way, most of them never seen a K-1 before. But here's, here's a problem. If you give an employee a profits interest, an ownership interest in your LLC, they are now self-employed. Oh, right? wow. So they are no longer, if you're doing it right, a W-2 employee, but are now a partner in a partnership for tax purposes. Um, so they're subject to self-employment taxes. Um, they can have different eligibility or payments for benefits, all sorts of stuff, right? right? It's another complexity that doesn't exist in a corporation where you just grant options or stock. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, maybe taking a, a, a giant step back to your original point of you referenced a step up in basis or do strategics like this. Right. Before I get into nuance, I'll start with what I think is the easiest answer. If someone really wants to buy you, they will buy you whether you are a corporation or an LLC. It will not matter. Right. Okay. And if you're selling for $50 million, right. you are likely to be psyched regardless of whether you're netting an extra 500 grand or not because you picked an LLC or a corp. Right. Right. Especially if you got to avoid a whole lot of complexity over the prior five, six, seven years. Right. Um, which, and by the way, not just complexity, it's that people screw it up all the time, yeah. how, to, how to deal with partnership taxes and allocations. So um, it could be a real problem. Yeah. All right. So a strategic is going to buy you either way if they really like you um, or a private equity fund. Right. Now, are there circumstances in which it would be beneficial to be an LLC at exit? And what is this step up that you're referring to? Yes, there are some circumstances. I will try my best since it's tax to say it simply. <laughs> it is this. Um, 
generally speaking, if you're an LLC, you can sell the equity in your company and you, the sellers, will be able to treat it as an equity deal where you're selling at cap gains Mm -hmm. and the buyer will be able to uh, get a step up in the basis of the assets, right? Now, the step up in the tax basis of the assets, the value of the step up in uh, the basis of the assets, the magnitude of it, depends on how many hard assets you have versus just trademarks and goodwill. This is where you definitely need a tax person because I'm qualified. But generally speaking, the more hard assets you have that you depreciated over time, the bigger magnitude there will be to be able to offer this step up in the tax basis to your buyer. And sometimes where there's a big step up in that basis, you will get more money to sell your company because they will- and that's probably where this whole thing comes from. Correct. You get it, you end up looking like you've made a bigger sale because the number's bigger because of that. That's right. But there's just a it's not like you're going to go like that step up in basis is going to take you from a 60 million sale to a 90 million. Right. It's not. It may and take you from 6 to 65. Right. right. Exactly. Right. So And so one last piece of this is this QSBS thing. Yeah. What is that? And how does it affect either decision here? Qualified small business stock is what QSBS stands for. You have to be a C-corp. In other words, the simpler of the two structures. And what it basically says is, if you hold your stock for five years and you you are otherwise eligible because you didn't blow some other, um, call it tax nuances, you can roll your... Uh, your cap gains in the sale of that qualified small business stock into other eligible investments and effectively protect yourself from um, the taxes that would have been paid on it. Right. right? It's really complex. It's way more complex than people think. Right. Uh, And it doesn't just mean you don't have to pay tax. It means you have to then take that money and invest it into something else. That's right. You have to go and roll it into something else. And what I will say is the benefit of this is it has some funds. um, uh, It's made it a little bit better from an efficiency standpoint and not just a simplicity standpoint to be a corporation, right? Right. Because your investors and yourself as the founder could get meaningful tax benefits when you sell the company for being a C-Corp. Right. Here's one of the major gotchas, right? Often founders take money off the table. Right. Um, if repurchases by the company exceed certain thresholds, uh, qualified small business stock eligibility, or the, sto- the stock you're selling will no longer be qualified small business stock eligible. Right? So don't do it. Um... Or just talk to your lawyer and your tax person when you want to do a, take money off the table right. just so you don't screw this up. Okay. Uh, Chuck? As yeah. riveting as all that is, it's <laughs> <laughs> the hour is nigh and um, Jess starts to give me like a little nudge. So um, thank you. I mean, I just feel like the, you could have your own podcast. You should. You should just have your own podcast and like tell everyone all of this because it's all really helpful and interesting. And I'm going to call you basically when we get off and ask you to <laughs> look at something. <laughs> maybe we need to do some 
some looking at the docs. Um, but I just want to thank you so much for coming on. Hopefully you'll come on again. Thank you for having me. Amazing. Jess, thank you for tolerating the fact that I always go over. Um, I really appreciate it. Listeners, thank you as always for continuing. This was episode 97 of In the Sauce, which is kind of crazy. Um, And I will be back next week with episode 98. Have a great week. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.